Hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tougher even if they don't. Today is Tuesday, August 11, 2020, and this is episode 2709 of the Survival Podcast. Today we're going to talk about something that you can do. Some of you do it. Lots of you already do it. Maybe we can talk about some ways to do it better and some solving some problems in it and maybe get some of you all started doing it. Many of you will be like, I remember my grandparents talking about doing that or I remember my grandparents doing that or my parents or maybe even my great-grandparents. And it's something we've talked about a lot before. What is it? Backyard egg production. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I'm calling today's show Eggs, the Backyard Protein that Fed Americans for Generations. Uh, this was inspired by Nicole Sauce. I had to be in the car yesterday for a while. Uh, no big deal or anything, but I just had to be there. And I turned on the radio, and I immediately wanted to punch myself in the face. So I opened up my podcast app and started thumbing through the various podcasts that I am subscribed to. Believe it or not, as a full-time podcaster, I'm not a very active listener. I don't listen to many podcasts. Um, but I happened to notice Nicole had a new episode out, and it was on Backyard Chickens. And I thought, I'll listen to that. Well, it ended up being on meat chickens, producing chickens for meat. And it made me realize two things. One, I haven't really talked about backyard poultry very recently. And two, I kind of wanted to. And I certainly didn't want to redo what Nicole had just done because it was... It was great. If you want to get a you know a recent podcast on meat chickens, there's a link in the show notes today. Go check out Living Free in Tennessee's recent episode on it. And uh, she talks about coming at it from a community aspect and things like that. But it it kind of like, ah, I want to kind of talk about that. And, you know, I thought about as much as I do with backyard poultry, my number one thing that we do it for is eggs. And it, it's been that way since we moved here. We've run some meat birds, and we've done some meat chickens, we've done some uh, meat ducks, and we've done some meat turkeys. And turkeys have been the best yield I've ever gotten in meat. But I haven't really talked about egg production. And it is one of the best things you can do for yourself and your family. And it's one of the easiest things you can do. And I'm going to even throw in like one little aside here today that's going to show you that almost anybody... Almost anybody can do this. Now, if you're in an apartment, probably not. Maybe, but probably not. Anybody else, I'll bet you by the time I'm done today, you'll be like, if I really want to produce eggs, I can, maybe not I want to, but I can. And I'm gonna, this is gonna be a fun episode too, so I'm gonna tell you the story of how my grandparents and almost everybody in the area that kept chickens did it back then and what we can learn from what was done in the 70s and 80s which were the vestiges of what came out of the World War One, uh, the Depression era, the World War Two era and the post-World War Two era and I'll tell you the real reason backyard chickens went away and it's not what you think it is, it is the government, it is the state but it's not what you think it's not, you know The 1955 Karen saying, I don't want chickens in my neighborhood. That's not what did it. Eventually they rose up and they, they made it more permanent, but they're not the reason the chickens went away. And it all hinges, remember the old saying, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, in the case of this, it all hinges not on the bird, but the egg itself. We'll get to that in just a minute. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is ButcherBox. We're talking about eggs for protein today, but man, I eat a lot of meat. 
And uh, Butcher Box is my go-to source for some of the best grass-fed beef I've ever eaten. Amazing pastured pork, awesome pastured poultry. Check them out today. I mean, buying local is best, but a lot of you don't have a good supply of local meat. And you can get it from Butcher Box shipped right to your door like a personally trained personal shopper went out and picked out the meat for you. It's just that good. Um, in fact, it's fantastic. It's so good that I take payment from Butcher Box in meat. I want to put out just a little piece of advice for you when it comes to your Butcher Box. One of the things that you can add to your box, like so you have your standard box, six selections, whatever. One of the things you can add to your box are these pork tenderloins. And these are not the big giant pork tenderloin you're thinking of, like from Smithfield or something that's you know as big as a loin almost. Uh, the tenderloin, of course, is the piece that would be in beef. It would be the filet mignon. They're small. They're you know poundish or so, a little bigger than that. I made one last night, sliced it super thin, and did like a teriyaki sauce for it and fried it really, really hot, really, really fast. So it was like charred on the outside. My grandson destroyed it. My wife loved it. A lot of times I'll make them. I wrap them in thin bacon, and then I cook them on indirect heat over the grill. That's a fantastic way. A lot of times I'll slice them open and put um, jalapenos in them. The thing about their tenderloin, since this is from pastured pork, it almost looks like venison. Not quite, but it's so deep red, it almost looks like venison. They're one of the best deals, I think, in an add-on that they have. You might want to give that a try. Check them out, back, uh, butcherbox.com. Next up, Backwoods Home. Backwoods Home is kind of, in some ways, part of the genesis of Survival Podcast. I first found them in 93 when I got out of the Army. And I started reading them. They were the first magazine as I, ever, I ever subscribed to as an adult. I'm still a subscriber today. And it was a lot of the stuff that I learned in Backwoods when I first started TSP especially that was a lot of the grounding and information that I did in some of my early shows on homesteading and stuff like that. They're just a great publication. Their quarterly uh, publication is awesome. You can get it shipped right to your door. And now that they've gone to four a year instead of doing like six a year or 12 a year, each edition is almost like a small book. They're just really fantastic. I mean, again, I've been a subscriber since 1993. That, that Actually, 94 is when I subscribed. That tells you something. Check them out today at BackwoodsHome.com. All right, so let's get into this thing. Let's, let's start off with, I just want to talk about when I was a kid, and we moved from Florida back to Pennsylvania, and I watched my grandparents keep some chickens, and the neighbor across the street keep chickens, and some neighbors up the street keep chickens, and... I was like, man, everybody keeps chickens. And my grandmother was like, no, almost nobody keeps any chickens anymore. And probably this will probably be the last group of chickens we do. And I said, really? It seems like, you know, there's those people there have, you know, the Kachmers, they have chickens. The Steffens have chickens. You have chickens. Or what have you. And she said, oh, it used to be that everybody had chickens. I said, even 10 years ago, everybody had chickens. And I asked her what happened, and she explained. And I'll get to that a little bit further on. What I want to tell you about now, though, is the way that they kept those chickens. So at any given time, my grandmother would have about four good laying hens. She would call them that, too. They're her good laying hens. And as anybody that's ever kept chickens knows, you get about two really good years out of them. A lot of people will call at 18 months when they go into their first molt. They're not going to lay for a while. And that second year will never be quite the production of the first year, especially with like what they call production reds um, and, and birds that are bred specifically to be as high production as possible. The older heritage breeds that, that most of these people kept, um, 
were not so much. And you would probably be willing to consider holding birds on until about year three. And by then you'd need to replace them. So they would have four good laying hens. Sometimes there would be an old bird, an old hen, that would be part of the flock. And I'll get to why she was allowed to be around in a, in a bit. And then there would be a rooster that helped take care of all the girls. And that number of good laying hens would fluctuate directly in proportion to what the family needed. So you wanted to be able to produce a few more eggs on average than you needed through the high season. And then you could freeze them or dehydrate them or, you know, do pickled eggs or something like that with the surplus. But basically, the goal was that you had enough eggs that you, you rarely, if ever, had to buy any eggs. That was, that was the goal. And the goal was never to sell eggs. Like, nobody sold eggs. If people had extra eggs, they just gave them away. There was, I, I, didn't, I didn't know a single person selling eggs in, in that little town in Pennsylvania back in the 1980s. And so that was kind of the maintenance level. And the reason was these were not pets. These were not pets. These birds had a purpose. They had a purpose and they had a function. They were supposed to help feed the family, and they had some other function stacking, even though they didn't call it that going on with them, with composting and, and dealing with waste and stuff like that. And then they ended their life usually in a stew pot. And I'll talk a little bit about ways to cook older birds toward the end of the show today. And that's what they were for. And hence, they were fed scraps, and they were fed surplus from the garden, and maybe even some things were grown for them in the garden. One thing my grandfather was big on is we had really fertile property. So I would go and I would plant um, the big giant mammoth sunflowers every year. Not really in the garden, kind of around the garden, around the edges of the yard and things like that. And then when those flowers would go dry, we would just cut the, the heads off them and we would just put them in like onion sacks and hang them down in the, in the, the, the cellar. And then, you know, you'd go down maybe a couple, three times a week and you'd grab one of those flower heads with the seeds still in it and you would just throw it in the chickens and they would just pick all the seeds out. That would be one example of things that we grew for the chickens. Uh, a lot of times when he had a bed that he really was like, okay, that bed kind of needs a rest, he would grow a grain for the chickens in that bed, like, like a wheat or something, something really cheap. Whatever he could get seed that would produce a seed head on it, that would make a good cover crop that would be really cheap, he would grow that. And, and this is kind of what everybody else did. And if you had a neighbor that had scraps that were good for chickens and that neighbor wasn't keeping chickens, they would generally bring their scraps and feed your chickens, especially if they had kids because the kids liked doing it. So we tried to feed our chickens as much as we could without buying feed. And as far as what feed was purchased, it was what was ever cheap. No one worried about organic. No one worried about any of that. They just bought feed, and the birds were probably only getting maybe half of their their intake from from that. And when there was certain insect activity going on, you'd kind of turn your chickens loose on it. Like if you had a lot of grasshoppers in an area, well, the feed would actually be, you know, you throw some feed in a can and you train the chickens. So you shake your can, and then you feed them. So when they hear a can shake, you let them out, they run to whoever has that can. So if you had a big field with a bunch of grasshoppers in it, you'd take that can and shake it and then throw a little bit of feed. That kind of got them started. And once they saw those hoppers, man, it was on. They were, they were going to eat those until they ran out. 
So the chicken was also a method of pest control. Sometimes you would have like an apple tree drop a bunch of apples. And you'd take the apples that were worth saving, and then all the apples that were kind of crappy, you didn't pick them up and bring them to the chickens. You brought the chicken to the apple. And, and that was just kind of the way of things. There was just a thing that was there on the property. Most people ran chickens either in a coop and run or a coop and double run. So you had your little chicken coop, and again, we, you know, nobody had a hundred chickens. If you would have had a hundred chickens in Minersville, Pennsylvania, or Jonestown, Pennsylvania, the people would have looked at you like there's something wrong with you. Like you're a crazy cat lady, but you're a crazy chicken lady. People had four, six chickens. You know, a big family might have eight. Or a family that's, that was helping another family that had kind of an agreement, like you bring all your scraps and things like that, might have eight and split the eggs. That's, that's how chickens were handled like that. So there was no need for a big coop. There was no need for a big run. And then the birds would be let out of the run to free range late in the afternoon to early evening. Because that way they wouldn't go very far. They wouldn't cause too much trouble. They wouldn't be up taking a crap on your porch. They wouldn't really be in the garden. If you got to a time of year where there was something in the garden that was really attractive to them and your garden didn't have a fence to keep them out, you just didn't let them out hardly at all during that particular period of time if they were a problem. And again, you used kind of the feed conditioning to put them where you want them. And that's what most people did. The people that did the coop and double run were absolutely generally doing the old school victory garden. You have the chickens on one side this year, you have the chickens on the other side next year. When they're on the other side, now that ground has all been de-weeded, it's been fertilized, it's ready to go, you plant into that side, and then next year you swap them. And what you would generally do is you would put down that garden that you did, you would seed it with like wheat or triticale or rye or something, in the very early spring, because it was too cold to grow a, a true winter crop up there. And then once that kind of filled in, you were about ready to plant, and you would move your birds, and, and, and then you would let them take that down, and then you would start feeding them and bringing the, all their scraps and everything again. Now, what would eventually happen is you would get to a point where you realize, okay, I'm about to be in a position not long from now where I need to cull these birds. I need about six months for a baby bird to grow into a bird, and then that bird can now be a new chicken that I can uh, use for eggs, and the old birds can go away. Because if I cull my birds before my young birds grow, I have no eggs. I have a, an egg delta, right? I have an egg drought. And I'm going to get that with um, my molt anyway. When chickens molt... Uh, they tend not to lay very many eggs during the molt. So what you would generally try to do is count back from your molt about 28 weeks to give you a little overlap. And then you would try to incubate or get a broody to take care of babies at about that time so that by the time your, your old birds were in a molt, your babies were laying right in the middle of that molt and so you would time it that way. That's what you generally would try to do. Sometimes people would just end up, hey, I didn't do it. I got to get it, you know, get it done. There were some incubators. The incubators were the old hoverbator incubators. They're the styrofoam ones, like kind of like styrofoam cooler material, two little windows, little rheostat, 
for a thermometer. They were cheap. Pretty much, you know, there was a couple here and there, and if somebody needed one, you would just borrow one. Like, nobody went out and bought a new one because you didn't use them that often. Again, nobody had 100 chickens. Nobody had a business built on this. This was something so many people did, you just did it. Now, the preference was to have a broody bird. So remember I said sometimes it would be an old bird that would be allowed to stay around, like an extra bird that wasn't one of the good laying birds? That was a bird that was a proven broody bird that would almost always take care of her, bird, her babies all the way through. And if you had one of those when everybody else got cold, she didn't get cold. She did not get cold. She had a place of honor. And if she did that long enough, even if she got to where she was never going to lay another egg again, she was now a pet. She kind of earned like the matriarch of the, the flock type thing. And you would feed that chicken for the rest of her life and not kill her because she earned it. There weren't a lot of those. But when you had one, I remember the catchers had one. By the time my grandparents had even gotten rid of their chickens, I was like, are they ever going to eat that chicken? They're like, no, she's a broody. They'll never get rid of her. I'm like, they don't even really seem like they want. No, she already paid her debt. Like, she's, she's good. She gets to stay. So the ideal situation would be you would take eggs until you had the quantity you wanted. You'd put them under a broody. She would do the job for you. And she'd probably be your one older bird that would stay and everybody else got cold. To do this, you were going to have to hatch a dozen to 16 eggs to end up with where you knew you would have four hens. And often when people were doing this, if they had like a slew of roosters, maybe, maybe your neighbor had more hens. And since you were just going to cull birds, you'd swap a couple of your roosters for a couple of their hens. They'd go ahead and cull those roosters. If they had served. Nobody bought, nobody paid for a chicken, nobody, no money ever exchanged over this. Like, I remember even one time we had a neighbor that needed uh, a hen. Like, she just needed one hen, and we had just done this. And my grandmother said, just take one of the hens, one of the new hens up, and give them to her. So I went up there, and she wanted to pay for it. And, of course, I wouldn't take it. My grandmother would have killed me for taking it. And she took it because she knew if the, it had been the other way around that, that she would have never taken money, you know, the, the other way. And this just, this again, this was just the way of things. And it was pretty much... What everybody did, as far as breeds, most people couldn't have told you what kind of chicken they had. There had been so much crossbreeding for so long that really what we probably had there was a, a variety of heritage breed that would have been like the coal mine chicken or something that's gone now because everybody quit. And you have to ask yourself, what caused this to go away? And like I said in the beginning, it is, it is the state, it is government, but it's not what you think. The, the anti-chicken Karens, and this is you know, that was long before we called them Karens, um, did eventually show up, but they're not what started this. This all goes back to post-World War One, is where it began. And it was really completely solidified by the end of World War II, but it just there was this lag of like it hanging on, even though it had been mortally wounded. So at the end of World War One, there had been massive disruptions in supply change. Um, there had been a tremendous number of young men who had been conscripted or volunteered for World War I that did not qualify. They weren't fit for service. And the number one reason was nutritional deficiencies. We had people that literally had their teeth falling out, not from being rotted, but from nutritional deficiency. All other types of, of problems as well. 
And so U.S. agricultural policy began to focus on not just making sure farmers were profitable, but making sure that food was available and cheap and affordable. Well, along comes the Great Depression, along comes the Dust Bowl, and along comes a slew of bankruptcies from farmers, and along comes an understanding from the government that we, we the one thing America has always had is the ability to feed itself. And that's when they really put in everything that makes up modern agricultural policy. It's not that things didn't grow after that. It's not that things didn't get worse after that. But that's where it was all put in place. By the end of the Great Depression, the beginning of World War II, we had subsidies on every major thing that Americans relied on to survive. So we were not going to, for instance, subsidize tomatoes, so to say. Um, but we were, we're damn sure going to sup, supple, uh, subsidize dairy and eggs and your, your base grains because that's what people survived on. So what that did is it took the cost of commercial eggs way, way down. But then World War II was there, and there were shortages, and there was a need to not only feed ourselves but feed our soldiers and sailors, etc., abroad. And so the whole idea of I want you to grow a garden, I want you to keep chickens, Uncle Sam came along with the Victory Gardens, Grow for Victory. And it already started in England before we got involved. So we just kind of took what they were doing, made it our own, and did it here. So this meant that the chicken didn't go away as soon as the price of commercial eggs dropped. Because it didn't drop as much, and it wasn't as available as much, and people felt they were doing their part for the war effort. And this is probably what kept it around as long as it did. Had World War II not come along, it may not have hung on anywhere near as long as it did, because it created this sense of understanding that there was a value to these birds as part of a gardening system, as part of a homestead in people's minds. And then there was just the stubbornness of that generation. Right, the stubbornness of the World War II generation, my grandparents' generation. They just wanted to keep old things around on top of it. So that kept it going through the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, and it kind of waned in the 80s as that generation really began to age. And if their kids and grandkids weren't going to step up and do it and start taking care of these homesteads, it wasn't just the backyard egg that went away. A lot of those homesteads just kind of became houses. So I, I did a show very early on, one of my most popular shows I ever did in like the first couple of months, From Home to Homestead, about taking your house from being a liability and turning it into a true asset by making it a producer. What was going on in the 70s, 80s, and 90s was a lot of those homesteads were turning back into homes. And eggs was just one part of that. Then, once the chickens mostly went away, and it became odd that Bill and Debbie still had chickens. That's when the anti-chicken Karens rose up and started putting things in place. And they didn't necessarily make those people get rid of their chickens. They just banned chickens, and they said, but will grandfather existing chickens? And eventually those people got old and tired and didn't want to do it anymore, and all of a sudden you had all these areas where nobody had ever kept a chicken, that was a foreign idea, and now there was an impediment in place to keep people from keeping chickens. And it's really been the last 15 years, and it's the Internet that's driven it more than anything else, where a lot of those restrictions have been 
relaxed or gotten rid of or exceptions have been made, and the backyard chicken has come back. And the backyard chicken's come back with some lessons from that generation, but in a lot of ways entirely different. Now you have people selling eggs. I'm not saying nobody sold eggs in the 70s and 80s. I'm saying I never saw anybody do it. And today, everybody I know that keeps chickens is trying to sell eggs to their neighbors, whether they're successful doing it or not. Today, a lot of people are doing chicken tractoring or doing some sort of electronet mobile coop type thing. And a lot of that is because a lot of people doing this have opted for larger pieces of land, somewhere between three-quarters of an acre and ten acres. Most of the people at the time that I'm talking about here, you know, had, my grandparents had like about three-quarters of an acre. My Uncle Pete had about an acre and a half. The Debskis, a family of north of us, they had, they had a big place. Their place was, but it was like two acres. But most of the people across the street from us, so we had like kind of different Like the, the the whole side of the street that, that my family lived on were the fur the oldest houses. They were the old farmhouses, so they had bigger pieces of land. The other side of the road was more hilly and it got developed later. Most of those places were like quarter acre, and they were hilly. So these people were doing much smaller things than, than a lot of people are doing today because they had to, like you could do in su the suburbs if you don't have an anti chicken carrying up your ass to prevent you from doing it. And that's where I think a lot of what they did we can learn from. Today, people are a lot more concerned with what the chicken's diet is. We tend to be feeding the chickens a more premium feed if we can afford it, an organic feed or a non-GMO feed. They didn't worry about non-GMO in 1982 because they didn't have GMO crops. You see how that works, how simple that was? There, wasn't, there was no concern about a genetically modified chicken feed because there was no genetically modified chicken feed. And even a lot of the toxins and stuff we worry about today were used a lot less at the time. And again, it, they were fed a little bit of scratch and a little bit of feed here and there, and they were they had to forage, and they were fed scraps, and that's how those birds were taken care of. And we can learn a lot from that. Your number one cost in taking care of birds, chickens or ducks, is going to be feed. There is no input that costs more money than that. It's almost 100% of your expense when it comes to taking care of them. And then birds have what you call a feed debt. This is what makes profitable egg keeping, especially if it's, it's imp you cannot profitably make eggs if you're doing any commercial feed at all. If you compare what you're producing to a dollar and twenty cent a dozen eggs at Walmart. And you shouldn't make the comparison, but you, you're not going to save money on eggs by keeping chickens. If you're going to make that comparison, you can produce eggs for about what you'll pay for a good quality egg from the store. The stuff that's maybe not just organic, but it's pastured or free range or cage free, which are all hokey marketing things. But there are some good brands that if you look at what they mean when they say it, They're pretty damn good eggs. And that, and you're going to find that you're going to produce an egg for about what you would pay to buy that egg. So we need to function stack our animals to make them work. We need to be producing our own chicks when and if we can so that we don't also have another two or three dollars a piece into the bird before we even feed it the first grain of, uh, of feed. That doesn't mean that we, we can't buy birds or we don't buy birds. I just bought some. Because I didn't have any way to produce any. 
But if you really want to make the most of it economically, you're going to have to function stack the bird so that you're not only getting an egg from the bird, you're getting meat when you cull the bird, and you're getting work from the bird while you have the bird. My ducks, in the amount of pests that they consume on this property, especially this time of year when grasshoppers are everywhere, and if they weren't here, they will literally consume everything to the ground. They more than earn their keep right there. If I had to pay them 100% in feed, which I don't because they're eating grasshoppers this time of year. They eat a lot less feed this time of year. But if I had to, they're worth it. If, if they took money, if my ducks took money, and I, I, I calculated what it would cost to get rid of that many grasshoppers organically through the summer, they earn their keep right there. Plus they give me eggs. Plus we sell the eggs that we can't use because we do have, you know, we have a small homestead flock now of about 20 birds. There's no way we need that many eggs. We, we do use less than a dozen a week. So we sell enough at a high enough price point to pay for them. We can only do that because they're duck eggs, first of all. That right there puts us at a premium because of the quality of our product. Every single person we've ever had as a customer who's gone somewhere else has come back to us and said, there is nothing like you have. And I find that crazy because I don't feel like what we do is that complicated in fact, I, I find it ridiculously easy, but it's a big part of the feed, the care, and 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 the the freedom that the birds have. They're happy, so they make a good product. But I mean, I, I feel like anybody can do it. It's just that nobody with ducks in our area is. It was very hard for us to make money with it, unless my wife was treating it like the business that it was. That's why we scaled it back, and our land was being pushed by the quantity. 20 birds do nothing to our land. They have no they have no negligible impact. They have a good positive impact, but nothing negligible. I had to really stay on the rotations when we were running 120 birds. I mean, it was weight-wise, it was equivalent to running like a Dexter cow. So a Dexter cow on three acres can mess stuff up if you don't do it right, especially with our brittle summers. So we have to function stack. If my birds are doing control... If I'm selling a little bit of my surplus, if I am getting my compost processed, if I'm using the bedding to build compost and I start looking if, if, if I can take all this material that I get for nothing to give them as bedding, maybe a little bit of straw in there, so a couple bales, but most of it is like wood chips I get from uh, somebody off the side of the road and that's becoming like premium compost. And if I have to buy that, you know, they're producing me a couple hundred dollars worth of compost a year. When I start looking at it that way, the way that my grandparents handled it, you know, they didn't have this free-range model. They were doing this flip, this this uh, coop-and-run flip. So you're getting this really productive garden out of it every year. It's the same net effect. And, and we had a garden that wasn't in the run. We In that run piece... We grew the things that really needed the most fertility, right? And we needed the things that had the we grew the things that had the highest pest pressure, because that ground had been worked over for a year by the birds. And so no matter how you do it, if you get that function stacking in to where you're using the birds as a labor agent, you're using the birds as an egg producer, and then you're finally using the birds as a meat yield, and you get as much of it done in-house, so to say, with your own rooster, your own reproduction, so that when you have to restart new birds, you're not having to go back to the well and buy. It's fine to buy initially, but and it's fine to buy when you have to. 
Don't not buy because I said that. And we'll talk about getting birds here in a second. But the more you can do with producing your own, the better off you are. Okay? Real quick before I go next, do not overlook quail. If you're thinking, I'd love to do all this, but I do have chicken carons and I, I can't. Um, a stack of quail cages in a garage can make you more meat and more eggs than you could ever possibly use. I, I really mean it. If you get good at what you're doing, they can also be tractored. There's a lot of ways. I'm not going to go into it today. We've done tons of content on quail in the past. If you just go to the site and click on, or search for quail, you'll find one episode that's almost four hours long. It's Q&A on quail. I almost like blew my, my voice out doing that episode, but I was like, I'm going to power through it and do the whole thing. And then there's a couple episodes before that, and that together is, is a freaking college course on quail keeping. Just they, I, I have to say this when we're going through this today. They are the most productive dual-purpose poultry in the world. So I'm focused on ducks and chickens today, but I, I can't not tell you that, right? Like, So with quail, in six weeks, I have a bird that we can eat. I can process it with no tools whatsoever. I can do it barehanded. In 30 seconds, I have a breast and leg quarters. In 30 seconds flat, honest to God. Um... At seven weeks, it will start laying eggs. About three to four quail eggs will equal the size of one chicken egg, and they will sometimes lay two eggs a day. And if you cull and, and, and replace with quail based on that seven-week cycle and the first molts, you'll never be without eggs. And with timed lights, you can make them lay 28 days a month every bird. And so... There is nothing on the planet that can compete with the productivity of egg and meat combination from Courtney's quail. Just so you know. There is, if, if I wanted the animal that can produce the most reliable protein with the least amount of outside inputs, it's going to be rabbits if I have the, the land to grow the stuff for the rabbits. You can literally feed rabbits almost 100% off the land and, and have a great meat yield. But that's not where we're going today either. I'm just going to throw those two at you if, if this doesn't work for you. I want to talk about real quick about procuring birds. And I want to talk about local procurement that's true local procurement. Buying from a local store, which generally is not local procurement in the reality, and getting them by mail. So true local would be if there's anybody around you that sells the birds that you want, go, go get them from them. Support the person doing that. Form a relationship and get a bird that was born in your backyard. It will be the healthiest, happiest young bird you can get. You'll also find that a lot of these people that do this, they don't have a lot of turnover. So the part of keeping birds that sucks the most is brooding. Right? That's when the birds die. If you get a bird out of the brooder, if it dies, it probably was a really stupid bird that killed itself, or like a fox ate it. If you can get them through the first two weeks in the brooder, they're probably going to live. If you can get feathers on them, fully feathered, it's almost inevitable that bird's going to live unless something really bad happens. right? And it could have had a disease or a stroke or you know, a chicken freaking disease or something, but in general, you're golden. What this means is if you have local producers, it is often the case that you can go talk to them and they'll have some birds that are like five, six weeks old. They might want a little more for them. They're worth it. They fed them, they got them through that, they're feathered, you can bring them home, throw them in a run. You may find people around you that sell pullets that are 12 weeks old. 
That's pretty much a grown chicken. It's still not going to lay for another 12 weeks. But if you can get local birds that are well started, that's what I would do. Especially if you've never kept chickens before. Because now we can skip the whole brooding thing. Okay? Um, but that's true local. Whether it's a peep that was born yesterday or a pullet that's going to start laying tomorrow. If it was born local, raised local, is local, it's true local. A lot of people think they're getting locally produced birds when they go to, you know, Atwoods or Tractor Supply or something like that. Let me tell you, you're not. They're buying from the same mail order hatcheries that you are. They might have corporate accounts and get a better price so that they can mark them up and whatever, but that's where most of those birds come from. And, and for instance, my local tractor supply, I have been at the post office picking up my birds and saw the manager picking up his birds from not the same company but a similar company at the exact same time that I am, and he's just walking out with a bigger box with more peeps coming out of it than me. So when you go to Tractor Supply, you go to Atwoods, you go to any of these big box stores, even a lot of your local feed stores that sell chickens, unless you can verify they have a local producer, you're getting a mail-order bird. It's still, in many ways, preferable to do that than to get your birds in the mail. Shit goes wrong in the mail. I do it when I have to. I don't like to. I do it when I want something that I can't get local. I want this, you know, when I wanted Welsh Harlequin ducks... That was the only way I was going to get them. Or I had to order them from California and hope that I didn't lose them in the mail. I have had birds die in the mail. I have had birds get lost in the mail. It happens. When you have a local provider who buys mail-order birds and resells them, you have an opportunity to let them take the risk. So I can go to my local tractor supply guy, and I can say, you know what I want? He'll say, what do you want? Now, this is during their what they call chick days. They don't, Tractor Supply doesn't use them year-round. Atwoods pretty much has them year-round. I haven't formed that relationship there yet, so I don't know if I can do this. But I can go to the Tractor Supply dude and go, I want Cornish Cross chickens for me. He'll go, okay, how many do you want? And I'll go, I want 40. Go, okay, we'll order them for you. Okay, when can I pick them up? He's going to say Wednesday, right? That's what he's going to say. And I know why he's going to say that, because they're going to get their chicks Wednesday morning. And I'm going to say, can I pick them up Thursday afternoon? And he's going to say, okay. Why use the troubleshooting mind that I've taught forever on this show? Why would I do such a thing? Because I know he's not going to order 40 birds. He's going to order 60 or 80 or 100 birds. He's going to order whatever he was going to order plus mine. I've already paid for them. He knows I'm good for them. If people come in and buy like crazy, he's going to hold 40 so they're there for me. Okay? But what am I buying? I'm buying birds that arrived Wednesday morning. They were put into a brooder. They were warmed up. They were fed. And they were watered. And they lived for at least 24 hours. They now have full little bellies. They're all nice and warmed up. And any of the ones that had something wrong with them that weren't going to make it, they've died or they look sick, and I'm not taking the ones that look sick. So he's taken my risk for me. Now, they have terms and stuff that where that risk is mitigated. They do, I'm, not, I'm not abusing them, but I am using their larger relationship than I have with that hatchery. So I'm going to get... 40 birds that are alive, and I'm not paying for them unless I get them. If they show up all dead, he's going to get his money back, and I'm going to get my birds next week. 
To me, that makes a lot of sense. And I would prefer to do that even if it costs me a little bit more. I'm probably going to pay about the same because my shipping is going to be prorated into the birds, but my shipping is going to be prorated against their much larger inventory they're buying than the small amount that I'm buying, if that makes sense. So that's local that's not really local. Another thing you can do is just like your local producers tend to have birds that are older, I have found a lot of your feed store type places. Like we have a place called Russell Feed where I buy my feed for my livestock. They do not have high turnover. And it is very possible that I can go in there and I can get ducks that are some 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 years. About this time of year I can go in there and I can find ducks that are six, seven weeks old. I literally, if I want to buy that bird, I, I they, they don't sell them for any more money unlike the local producer that knows what they have. They need to get rid of this thing now. They're going to sell it for the same price it was when it was a little duckling. Well, they fed it for six weeks. They took care of it for six weeks. It's got feathers now. I can bring it home, stick it in the duck poop, and it's ready to go. That's another little trick you can work on is finding those older birds at those smaller feed stores and, and, and what have you. Now, if you need birds, it's a risk because they might sell before they, they hit that age. But if you just happen to go into them and all and you could use a few birds in your flock, always check for that. Because you might end up with birds even that, like, yeah, they got to be in a brooder for, like, a week. All right? Um, but those are your differences. When you order birds in the mail, they're probably the same birds that Tracker Supply ordered in the mail. Just saying. Um, and I'm not opposed to it. I want to tell you what I call my brutal-ass brooding method and why it works so well. Yes, some die, and I'm okay with it. I do not put birds in general. I still will if I feel that I need to based on the weather conditions. I do not put birds in a box with a light on them. I might give them a light, depending on the time of year. Right now I'm brooding nine phantom chickens. I started out with 12. Three of them died. One, I'm absolutely certain would have died no matter what I did. The other two, maybe. Birds die. It's what they do. They were like one day old. They had just got them in from a supplier. I couldn't play my little trick of getting three or four day old birds. Now, they're like three weeks old, they're running around, they're happy, they're great. They're in a cage that has a bottom where they can peck through it like a tractor. It's about two foot by three foot. And every day it moves a couple times so that they get new places to poop and new places to pick. In there is water and food. Over the top of it are two big heavy pieces of plywood that keeps cats and predators from getting into it, and it keeps them shaded at all times. It's 100 degrees out. They don't need a heat light. They don't need a heat light. They're okay. Now, they're just in there until they're big enough to go with the other birds. It might get to a point where I have to split them in half. If they get a little bit bigger, they're bantams, so they're not going to get that big. But if they start to seem a little crowded, I'll have another one of those, or I can build them a bigger tractor, and I just need them to be big enough that they're not going to get picked on by the other chickens, and I need them big enough that a rat snake's not going to eat them. Right now, the size they are, even if the other birds wouldn't bother them, I have rat snakes in my chicken coop. I just got rid of one today. I posted a picture of it on social media. They will get eaten. They will absolutely get eaten by rat snakes at the size there. Rat snakes like to eat birds. They almost should call them bird snakes because they prefer eggs and birds over rats. Just honest to God. So once they're that size, they're going with everybody else. That means they have not been in the house. That means my work for them is very limited. And what I have to do, they are less than five minutes of work a day. I go out, I move the cage, I put the, the, the stuff back on, I make sure they have food and water. I do that like three times a day. I, give, I move them 
twice a day, and I check on them, you know, one more time. That's it. And if they die, they die. I'm not a farmer. I'm not raising these birds for meat birds. If one dies, I'm not out of $25 pastured chicken. If I keep one alive with shitty genetics and I reproduce it, I'm producing weak offspring. I, if they're going to die, I want them to die. I know that sounds harsh. I have nine left. I'm hoping three or four of them are hens. I want some hens, and I want one rooster, and the other roosters are going to be Cornish game hens basically on the grill. And that method seems harsh, but if you can get your birds to raise their own, they're not any less harsh. A mama chicken you look at and think they're really good mothers, and they are, but they are the same way. They don't try to limp the weak across the threshold. They will wait for their eggs to hatch. They'll kind of hang out near the nest till the little guys get mobile. And then they go back to being a chicken like they were before they brooded. And the little birds follow them around. And this whole shit with, we, well, you have to keep them at exactly 97 or 98 or whatever number, 99 degrees for the first week. And then you can lower the temperature one degree. What kind of retard are you if you actually believe that? Well, the mother chicken keeps her babies warm. Have you ever seen a mother chicken take care of her babies? Sure, she'll sit there and they all cuddle up on her. But most of the day, what is she doing? She's running around, and they're following her everywhere she goes. And they're doing their little chicken thing. Do you think, they're, do you think when it's 78 degrees out in the spring, and a mother chicken spends four or five hours foraging with her little chickens following her around, that somehow she's magically shitting a laser beam that warms each one of those little chickens to 99.5 degrees? Does that make any sense? Does she magically lowers it one degree? Now, these numbers have been come up with By the agricultural people, they figured out if you do this, the greatest number of your birds will survive eight weeks to be marketed as a meat animal. Great, if that's what you're doing. That's not what I'm doing. That's not what most of you are doing. That's not a backyard egg flock. I don't want sick, weak chickens. I do the same thing with ducks. And the biggest thing I've learned that's got me past this, and I didn't do it this time, and it might be why I lost two of the three I lost, Like I said, one, just if I would have paid more attention when the guy was picking the birds out for me, I probably would have recognized there was something wrong with it. And if you see a weak bird, if you see a bird that's not, this is not a place where you want to rescue runts. Let somebody else buy that bird. Your birds that you pick should be the ones that are running around, moving around. Now, they kind of pass out and look like they're dying when they sleep. That just chicks sleep hard, man. But when they're being moved, When they're being kind of prodded and they're running around, if everybody runs away and one just kind of sits there and kind of his head's like moving a little bit weird or whatever, you don't want that one. I got one of those. The other two, I didn't do what I always do, and as soon as I started doing it, I haven't had another loss. Nutritional yeast flakes. So you can buy yeast, hundreds of ways you can buy yeast on, on Amazon or in stores. Don't buy like Baker's yeast or something like that. That's active yeast. And it can start to ferment in the gut of the chicken. As an animal gets older, a little bit of that's probably no big deal. But a little bitty tiny chicken that hasn't developed its intestinal flora yet, and all of a sudden it's got active yeast fermenting in its gut, you kill it. The, the, the yeast flakes, nutritional yeast flakes, the yeast has been basically grown and killed, but then all of the vitamins and nutrients that it have remain. 
And a lot of vegetarians and vegans use it because it's one of the few sources of really good B12 that you can get that truly is vegan if you don't believe yeast is alive because you're, I don't know, dumb. All right. Um, it also has a cheesy-like flavor. So if you want a non-dairy cheese flavor, like on popcorn or potatoes and stuff like that, it actually kind of has a cheese flavor. I don't eat it. I just know that. I buy it. It's cheap. You get a great big bag of it, like a pound of it. And all I do is my filter feeder, I sprinkle some of it like, like it was salt and I wanted it to be really, really salty. The best way I can describe it. And every time I add feed, I sprinkle some of that on there. And when I started doing that with my ducks and I started doing it with my chickens, my losses plummeted. Probably to the point where if I do it and I don't forget to do it with new birds, my losses are as low as the people who do all this light shit and whatever and brooding and worried about the temperature each day and crap. I don't do that and I get great survival rates. But what I don't do, I'm not going to buy chickens in January and do this with them or ducks. I'm not putting baby chickens or ducks out in the cold January weather. I'm going to buy them at the right time of year where they have mostly the temperature they're looking for, and I'm not going to let them get beat up by the sun. I'm going to keep them almost 100% in shade. If I'm going to let sun in, because they like the sun sometimes, I'm going to let it very small area of sun, because they're not that smart when they're babies, and they, they if you give them like half shade, half sun, sometimes they'll sit there in the sun and die. I don't let them run out of water, and I don't let them run out of food, and I move them frequently. And I'm not saying it's the best. I'm saying it's the best for me. And I get very robust animals, and I have very... Once I get that bird through the first couple of weeks, it's it, I don't have losses. I just don't. Um, strategy is a good idea when it comes to weather and timing, and this is, this is why I'm brooding right now. I love to brood right now. I love to brood in early fall, like September, for me. September for me is not September for you in upstate New York. You know, you're... Your second half of August is like my second half of September. So you have to think about that bird aging and how big it will be by the time that really cold weather comes. Okay, so it's not that it's not that September in upstate New York is that cold, it's that October can be. And is that bird going to be feathered out? Also, when does it rain? Best time to brood birds to do them outside is when it doesn't rain. Wet is what kills them. Wet will kill ducks. Ducks wet will kill chickens. If you're doing ducks, you need to make sure that they don't have a way that like they can get too wet from their water system, at least until they start to put feathers on, and at least until they learn how to preen. And they at least have to have a way to get out of there. I will put a brooder lamp over like a tractor or an outdoor system for them if I'm brooding at a time of the year when it's cold. If it's cold at night and not cold during the day, I don't give them a brooder lamp during the day. I give it to them at night, and I give it on one side so they can choose where they want to be. And I never put too many in a brooding tractor or a brooding cage, ever. I do not, because what, the other thing that kills them, they'll all, even if they're not cold, they all bunch up, and they'll get in a corner, and the one that's all the way against the corner, a lot of times will get suffocated by his brothers and sisters. So that's, that's my brutal last way. That's my strategy. Balancing free-range, coop-and-run, tractoring with the needs of the birds and the needs of humans. This is kind of important. So tractoring is a great way to have complete control over having your birds where you want them, when you want them there, and they're not going to cause any trouble and you're not going to have any predator problems because they're inside a cage, just a movable cage. 
however, then you really need to make sure that you have the capacity and time to see to moving that frequently and that you definitely don't overpopulate that tractor. The other side of like a coop and run arrangement is you're going to have to feed more, even if it's scraps, if those birds aren't getting out. Free range is the easiest thing you can do. It's why most people do it. It's not because they think it's best, right? I mean, they might think it's best, but that's not why they do it. People tend to do whatever is easiest for them. And there's it's hard to have something easier than in the morning I go open the door and the chickens go out, and at night I go close the door after the chickens go in. We could even automate the door. Once we automate the door, the door opens, the chickens come out, the chickens go home, the door closes. As long as I feed them and give them water, I don't have to do anything else except pick up eggs. And so it's really easy. Until you have chickens shitting on your porch, until you have chickens digging your flower pots out, until you have chickens digging up all your landscaping, until you have chickens going over the fence and doing it to your neighbors, until you have chickens getting eaten by dogs. So free range is great if you can solve the problems. There are some ways to solve the problems. And I'm about to go through some options as far as what type of birds, but I'll tell you right now, in my experience, and I could end up, this is my only experience has been these four birds, I'm down to one left, They got old, they're starting to die of old age. And that's why I got new ones. Bantams don't cause a lot of problems. They just, they're like, they are to regular chickens how Muscovy ducks are to regular ducks. If you've ever kept ducks, you know, like, you put out a pool for regular ducks to swim in, and in like 15 minutes, it is nasty, shitted up, disgusting. You have the same number of Muscovies, that water doesn't look that bad by the end of the day. They just, I don't know why, and they crap in water. They just don't make as big a mess. They don't, they don't range as far. They don't go do as much. They kind of hang out like dogs under the deck. Bantams, that's, you know, they go out and they do their thing, but they are not big. In fact, if you want them for composting and all, they may not do enough scratching for you compared to larger breed chickens. Um, I'm not saying they won't go in a garden. I'm not saying they won't mess some stuff up. I'm just saying they do it less. My experience with them has been they don't tend to like to get up on things as much. Like they go roost at night, but my garden beds are just 27 inches tall. And my ducks and my chickens don't get up in my garden beds. So since they don't get in there, they don't cause a problem. I'm not saying they won't for you. I'm just saying that's my experience with bantams. There's ways you can do it. You can fence the bird. If you want a free range, you either obstruct or fence out the birds in some way from where you, you exclude them. So either contain the bird or exclude the bird from areas you don't want the bird to go. Cutting wings, uh, wing clipping, works to a degree. I had one breed I think my grandparents would have been in love with, uh, Egyptian Faomis, really, really lightweight birds. And eat, I mean, I cut those till they were butchered looking. I mean, I wouldn't have taken another speck of feather off of them. I didn't hurt them or anything, but like, just trying to keep them from getting over a six-foot fence. And those little birds would go to the bottom of that fence. They would jump with everything they had. That would get them three feet, four feet off the ground. They would flap with what wing they had left. They would get their bill hooked into, their beak hooked into the top of the fence, and they would pull themselves over. But they were the best birds for finding their own food, and they were lightweight and they were fast. They were amazingly fast. Um, and they w laid kind of a smaller white egg. They were a great bird, though, but... They would have been the most difficult bird to exclude. 
I mean, you really had to exclude them. They would have made a great coop and run bird. And then you could do what my grandparents did. If it's going to be dark, where like by 8 o'clock, the birds are going to go back in the coop, and you let them out for like the last hour, they're not going to get into the type of mischief that they normally do. And what happens at that time of night? All the bugs come out. If chickens and ducks have bugs to eat, they generally don't screw other things up very much. They eat a little bit of grass here and there, but they spend most of their time in pursuit of insects. So it's up to you how you want to solve it, but you have to balance it with your needs and their needs. right? And I have no problem with people running chickens in a, a coop and run. None. Um, I do think it makes a lot of sense to get them out at some point. Ducks, to me, ducks are the solution to this free-range thing. I don't have any problem with ducks. Occasionally we have some poop on the, on the porch problems. That's about it. They don't tend to mess stuff up very much. They just don't. Especially with garden beds, if you just raise them up a couple of feet, that's going to be, for most of you, in my experience, enough. Birds to consider. Your production chickens, those are like your red sex links and, and what have you. They're birds that are bred to be high egg producers. They're great. I have found, in my experience with them, that not only does their production number of eggs go down in the second season, the quality does. I'm not saying they're bad. I'm just saying they're kind of malformed. It's weird. It's almost like you've just asked too much in the first laying season from them. I'm not a fan. I'll probably never own them again, but I wouldn't tell you not to do it. I did it, and they, they make eggs. All right? Um, heritage chickens, and that's just basically any chicken that's not specifically a production chicken. I don't care what breed you get. I think they're all cool, and I think there's so much diversity and so much to offer from them that I think if you want Araucanas or whatever, I mean, just whatever you want. And I think that's probably the best way for the most people to go. Is And I think that there's a lot of value and possibly getting kind of that diverse flock, you know, eight birds, two of, you know, four different breeds, two of each. And, and figure out the personality and the intrinsic characteristics and the egg quality and all that, that you like the most. And then kind of move your flock to more of a single or dual breed flock. Um, roosters. Roosters to me are, you don't know what you're going to get. I've had some roosters that are like, pets they're just the and that big spurs mean ass bird if they need to be like to protect their their girls but i mean i had one i named him upgrade he used to come up to me and basically rub my leg like a cat it's kind of a unique i won't tell the story today it's kind of a unique way that he got that way but i mean i have and i've had roosters are little assholes and my rule with a rooster is if it spurs me if it tries to spare my spur my grandchildren it hangs in the oak tree, and it gets processed. And so when I raise birds, if I'm doing a straight run or whatever, I have, I'm going to end up having multiple roosters. Whatever rooster is my nicest rooster that's also nice and healthy and looks nice, he gets to stay. Everybody else gets cooked. Bantam chickens, like I've said earlier, to me, I think they're underrated. They're, I have actually found, this is a weird thing on it, the roosters with bantam chickens tend to have more asshole roosters than full-size birds. And I think there's like a Napoleon complex thing going on there. I've, I've never had a rooster of a full-size breed bite me. 
like mean ass, I'm going to bite you, bite. I've had them peck at me a little bit here and there, but in general, they don't bite. I had a little bantam rooster somebody threw over my fence. I didn't know it was a rooster when I first got him. He was pretty young. I just saw him walking through the field one day. I'm like, where the hell is that from? And I kept him. It was a little, a little uh, like a blue coaching. And he turned into a complete ass. I mean, he would, like, if you went to feed him, he would bite your hand when you went to feed him. And he had to go. I mean, I'm sorry, you don't, you don't get to do that. And I've seen that more in bantam roosters, though I've seen some really gentle bantam roosters. I have never seen an aggressive bantam hen. They seem to be the most inquisitive little birds. They seem to be the birds that you get to the point where you can pick them up and touch them and they don't run away as much, even if they don't really like it. You know, they are the bird you can catch fairly easily if you need to pick them up to check them. Um, I just really like them. Yes, they lay smaller eggs. I actually think they're a perfect size egg, though. Especially if you're somebody that likes to do your eggs over easy or sunny side up, they just cook beautifully. So, definitely consider them. Mallard breed conventional ducks. That's any duck. Silver Apple Yard, Welsh Harlequin, Rowan. Every duck that's kept commercially that's not a Muscovy duck comes from a mallard. The very first commercial ducks ever were Rowans, and they were just simply wild mallards that were bred for size. So we got a mallard. That's all a Rowan is. A Rowan, a Rowan is a domesticated mallard that's about twice the size of his wild counterpart. The first Cayugas were a pair of black mallards that landed on some guy's pond. He captured them and started breeding them and did the same thing with them that people did with Rowans. And all the breeds and colors and characteristics and everything within the world of conventional ducks comes from a mallard. And I'm going to throw in kind of like as a different thing, even though it's not runner ducks. And I'll cover them together. Runner ducks, if you look... Everything you can get in a duck, you can get that color pattern in a runner. All the runner duck is, is a mallard-derived duck that was bred to be thinner and taller and lighter and, and, and go upright. And they were heavily bred throughout like Thailand, India, China, all of Asia. And they were used primarily in rice patties. And they were bred to be upright, they, they look kind of weird, they look like a, I don't know, a penguin with his arms tied behind his back or something when they run. They were bred to do that so that they were easy to move over long distances. They are actually exceptional egg producers, and they have a very high feed-to-egg conversion ratio. They make a lot of eggs for what they eat because they're a light-bodied bird. Okay, But all of them are fine, and they all you take care of them the same way, so get what you like. Muscovies. Muscovies are this like this like third wheel of backyard poultry, right? Like they're their own thing. They are probably for what you would keep in a backyard that was be would be an egg producer, they are probably your best meat animal, your best dual purpose bird. I usually say if something excels at one thing, if, if it if it if it's dual purpose, it excels at neither purpose. Muscovies are an exception. With a caveat in how they produce eggs. A Muscovy will generally give you 120 to 180 eggs a year, but they give you a lot of eggs in the spring, then they have a, a slowdown, then they give you a big pulse, and then you don't get any eggs. They're kind of close, more closely related to goose species than duck species. So they lay a ton of eggs, but you go a long time without any. But you, you do get a ton, and the quality is 
there. The meat of a Muscovy duck is closer to beef than it is to chicken. It is phenomenal. And drakes are big birds, and a, you know, one half of a drake breast from an adult Muscovy duck is a meal for two people. So there, if you want a dual purpose, and they're also the broodiest critters I've ever seen. A female Muscovy that decides she's going to sit on eggs will sit on those eggs until they hatch, and she will take care of those babies. And this is the cool thing about Muscovies. They have a, because they're more of a goose than a duck, they have a 35-day cycle for their eggs from the time they lay an egg to the time they hatch an egg. That means they're meant for long-duration brooding. If you give a Muscovy chicken eggs, she will brood them in their 22-day cycle. It won't even stress her. Right? She won't know. She won't care. She'll, she'll raise them. If you give her a regular duck's eggs, I think it's a 28-day cycle. So they have no problem kind of doing interspecies brooding for you. And if you, if you for instance, make sure when you take your broody um, Muscovies, if you separate your Muscovies for a couple days, then you'll know nothing. You can actually look and you can tell if there's a Muscovy egg in a regular duck. If you know, you really know what you're doing. But if you only take eggs from your conventional birds and give them to your Muscovy, you'll know you have no Muscovy genetics. Especially if you only have female Muscovies, regular ducks or chickens, and no Drake Muscovies. Drake Muscovies, just so you know, will fight. They will fight. But boy, it would be hard to beat a backyard flock of just Muscovy ducks. As long as you can accept the fact that you're going to have to preserve eggs somewhere or another during you know the high season because you're going to go that long egg drought with them. Um, I also think we should all think about working with neighbors. So the more you can feed ducks scrap, then the less you or, or, or chickens or anything, right? The less you have to feed them that you pay for. And you might find that if you have, especially neighbors that have kids. If I give you a bucket and I tell you what you can save for the, the ducks, will you or the kids bring it over a couple times a week and just dump it here and let them eat it? You might find a lot of neighbors are like, yeah, I'll do that, and just for a few eggs. You know, they might do it for four eggs a week or something. And that is a really great thing to have. If you have that relationship, when you have to travel and you need somebody to watch your place for a few days, you have somebody that's actually familiar with the animals and their needs and their systems. Even if they're not the person that can be relied upon to be fully responsible and you have to bring in somebody else, they're there as a resource. I can't find the feed. Oh, they keep it over here. Oh, this is broken. Oh, that's where they keep the... Like, you have like a local on-the-ground helper, even if they're not your full responsible party. Whatever ways you can work with your neighbors, try to do that. Next, um, culling. I just want to say real quick on this. If you are not willing to take your old birds and kill them, you probably shouldn't do this. Unless you absolutely have someone who will take those birds off your hands and you're okay with the fact that what they're probably going to do with them is kill them. Now with ducks, Muscovy and conventional, you may not have to do that. I have yet to have a duck stop laying eggs. They are born with 1,500 ovum versus a chicken's 1,000. That's a, that's a lot more. 
and it generally gets them through five, even six seasons of producing enough to keep them around. If you have a chicken that's molted twice, you have a pet. She will never give you enough eggs to justify her existence unless she's the old broody hen that you keep around out of a place of honor. But if you have six chickens and they're three or four years old, you might get an egg a day. And most people, that's not why we have them. And they need to go somewhere. And it's unreasonable Do you expect that somebody has a happy chicken retirement home. It's a chicken. You probably eat chicken every day. If you're not willing to take full responsibility for that bird's end-of-life cycle, you probably shouldn't do this. Because I know what happens. It happens to me all the time. I'll look, and all of a sudden there's a chicken or there's a rooster. It's a young rooster or an old chicken walking around on my property. And I kill it. If I wanted one, I would go get one. So the person that thinks they've given this, this, you know, this young rooster a nice life on a farm has just outsourced its killing. And it's irresponsible. And I don't know how an aggressive rooster might behave towards some of my other birds. That can be a problem. If you do that, you are a sorry human being. To be going out throwing, do not do fence roostering. Don't do it. If I catch you doing it, I will follow to your, your house and I will knock on your door and I will shove that rooster down your throat if you, if I catch you doing it. You, I, you're not doing that to me and you're not doing it without consequences. It's, it's, it's completely irresponsible. Don't do it. And don't get into something that you're not willing to take 100% responsibility for. And if you have somebody, it's like, yeah, I'll take all your calls. Fine. But make sure you don't think it's easy to do that. Don't think it's easy to find. Please be responsible going in. Here's some good ways to cook those roosters and your old birds, right? Believe it or not, young roosters are really good old-fashioned fried chicken. They're tough. They're this or that. How do you think fried chicken came to be? How do you think it became the habit of housewives to marinate chicken and buttermilk for a day. How do you think that happened? It wasn't because, oh, look, that's what that's what Kentucky Fried Chicken does. That's where they that's where the colonel got the idea. Buttermilk tenderizes chickens. And you have yes, there's less meat on them and what have you, but believe it or not, when I say young roosters, I'm talking like you brought in some birds, you did a straight run, you you got your rooster you selected you got your hens, your pullets, and you have your extra roosters. And they're 10, 12 weeks old. Yeah, they make good fried chicken. Believe it or not, they make great fried chicken. Um, they make great chicken fried chicken, right, um, with the breast meat. So if you think about how you make chicken fried chicken, you take your breast, boneless, skinless, of course, and you, you pound it till it's thin, and then you bread it and fry it. Now, I don't do a lot of that anymore, but there's things you can bread chicken with that's Keto, too, if you want to. I mean, one of the things you can use to make a really cool, crispy outside coating of chicken is protein powder. That's just one option. There's some others. But that's a good way to do it, too. And any kind of way where you do, like, a thin pounded breast uh, is a really good way to use those, you know, those cold roosters or even old cold hens. Because it's going, you're not going to have a thin pounded piece of chicken cooked quickly through any method be tough. And a lot of these older birds or these young roosters, they have a lot more flavor to them. They actually taste better. Uh, one of my favorite things to make out of old birds is coca vin, which is it literally trans for, uh, translates into cock and wine. 
Uh, so this was a French housewife in invention. I'm not going to talk about how to make it, but you can look up how to make it. Basically, it's it's slow cooked chicken. It's 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 a type of like a farm stew, and, and that is probably the highest and best used of an, especially an old rooster. When you have to call a rooster, it's a bigger bird. Those really are tough. Um, you you turn it into cook of in, and it that you know the French are some of the most brilliant culinary people in the world. Almost every great chef um, that ever you know that studies cooking and becomes really really good, no matter what they specialize in, uh, if they have any true culinary education background, there's always some of the French background in it because it's just they didn't not they 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 didn't just know how to cook well, they knew how to cook right to come up with proper combinations and things. And Cocavin was not only something the French came up with to make use of that old rooster, but to make best use of that old rooster. Next is just a plain old stew. Any piece of meat, you cook it long enough, it gets tender. And stews and soups are both great things to do with your cold birds. And then ground. Uh, Nicole was talking about this. One of the people that she knows, I think his name's Brett, uh, does like a chicken bratwurst. If you grind meat, it's not going to be tough. So... Uh, sausages, meatballs, etc. One thing I would say about chicken especially, when you grind chicken, you should have that meat almost too cold to grind. It should almost be frozen. Like it should be partially frozen to the point if it's a little bit more frozen, it probably would have a hard time getting out of the grinder. The other thing you want to do with it, go with a coarser grind. When you grind chicken to the fine grind that a lot of people do beef, It turns into like a paste, and it's kind of something you're like, I kind of wish this would go away and die. You want to do like a chili grind with chicken, in my opinion. Uh, I grew some, uh, raised some Red Rangers one time. These are based, a French thing as well. Uh, they're also known as Dixie Rainbows. There's a bunch of different names for them. But they're basically a heritage bird that has a kind of a red-brown feathering. And they don't grow as fast as like a Cornish cross or whatever. They're more like a 12 to 14 weeks to finish time on them. They were really delicious, but the the breasts were small, even though the birds were big. I mean, we let a couple of them go like 20 weeks to see how big they would get. We had chickens that dressed out at like 12 pounds. They were huge. And still, even those those big giant birds had fairly small breast cutlets. The breast was very good. It was delicious, in fact. It was just small. The weight was all in the thighs and the legs. The thighs on these things were huge. And no matter how much you cooked them, they didn't look done. I mean, I slow cooked one of them it fell apart, and it still when like the joint came apart in between the thigh and the leg. It looked bloody. So they, they didn't seem to make a really good consumer-level product. But again, the French love them. Now, I let them get bigger than maybe I should have. Um, I think the French finished them at 11 weeks. Uh, I can't remember the name for this particular type of pastured chicken, um, but I think they finished them at like 9 to 11 weeks, somewhere in there. Um, but I have to say, I never thought of grinding. And the the thigh and, and, and leg meat on those birds, ground and made into a sausage, would have been phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. So there's always ways that you can do better. When it comes, I just want to stop... With or, or finish up with feed, um, feed the best you can afford under the options that you have. And so, what I mean by that is, if you told me, well, Jack, you know, to, to make this even make sense for me, 
to produce my own eggs. Buying the Purina Lairina, you know, pellets down at Tractor Supply that's half of the price of what you feed your birds, this is the best I can do. And if I'm not going to do that, I'm not going to keep birds. What should I do? Keep birds and feed them that. I, I mean, really, I that bird is going to produce a better product than you will ever get in a store. If that bird's getting out, it's getting the forage, it's getting scraps, it's getting insects, and that's just a part of its diet. Comparing that to you know the Styrofoam $1.19 a dozen eggs from Walmart, that egg is going to be 20 times better. My belief is if you can get a really great quality feed, I love feeding my birds the Texas Naturals feed. It's non-GMO. It's not organic. It's not perfect, but it's the best feed to produce the best product, we, and it's peanut meal-based. And it produces, we've done meat birds with it too. It is phenomenal, the product that we, that we end up with. And so would I prefer if that product was using organic peanut meal? Sure, I would. And my understanding from talking to Texas Naturals is most of the grain in it is organic. It's the peanut meal that makes up the protein base that isn't because it would price them out of the market. Because a lot of the stuff that they're using, if they if they weren't using organic, they would be dealing with other issues that they don't want to deal with. So a lot of the other components to that feed is organic. And, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect. My belief is that your birds will produce the best product that they're capable of more because of how you care for them than exactly what feed you give them. Because, again, some significant portion of their diet should be coming from grasshoppers and weed seeds and weeds. And, you know, if you garden, grow greens for your chickens, especially like in the summer, right? When we, if we grow lettuce in the summer here, it bolts and it's bitter. Chickens don't care. You know, throw some throw lettuce seed down wherever you have empty space. Water the hell out of it. Let it grow. When it starts to bolt, yank it out and throw it to them. They won't mind. Grow them, you know, grow them kind of rogue grains. Grow amaranth. Just cut the heads off. And you don't have to... Th- see, that's the thing. Like, amaranth is a great grain, but it's kind of a pain in the ass to grow enough amaranth to make it worth growing for yourself. Right? Because you have to clean it and get all the chaff out of it. The chicken doesn't care. The chicken doesn't care. The duck doesn't care. Take the amaranth, cut the top off, let it start to dry, throw it in. They'll eat it. That's like we used to do with the sun. I do that with sunflowers now. So I used to grow the big sunflowers, the striped ones for the chickens that my grandfather had. What I grow now are the black oil sunflowers. So we grow... Or we, we feed chicken, we feed our birds at the bird feeder. We feed them black oil sunflower. That's just the best, to me, that's the best bird seed to put out. Um, it's not the least expensive, but it's not real expensive. And it, it the most variety of birds, if you want songbirds to come, is what I'm talking about. Well, if you look in today's picture, you'll see that my chickens and my ducks are underneath a bird feeder. And there's like a male cardinal, a female cardinal, and a big white-winged dove eating and they're knocking extra over, and the chickens and the ducks are cleaning up the black oil sunflower. And what will happen is we'll end up inevitably with some of these sunflowers growing as volunteers. And then they get a head on them. You know, it's about the size of a softball. And we just let it until it leans over and dries out. And then I just take a, you know, a knife or whatever and cut the whole head off and throw it to them, and they eat it. I grew, um, what is a sorghum for quite a few years. And that's something I probably should start growing again. 
Uh, it's a great hot weather crop. It doesn't mind the heat. And there's there's times when my garden is starting like right now. My garden's like I'm see uh, in September, dude. That's where my garden's at right now. I, I really should have planted like some Mennonite sorghum or something um, through the center of my garden. And right now I could be going in there and cutting it down and just feeding them the tops of that. Our, my goose used to chop the. I was growing sorghum in the swales, and the goose would go through. She would bite it until the whole stalk fell over, and then the other ducks and chickens would run and eat it. So they were self-harvesting. Like you can grow things like that. Quinoa. Um, I talked about horizontally. I haven't tried feeding them that yet. I can't imagine that they wouldn't eat that. I really can't. They love lamb's quarter. Lamb's quarter is a weed. You can grow like so. And and I, I know chickens will eat lamb's quarter seed. So you can let them get lamb's quarter get huge. Let that the black seeds on it, and then just like I said, cut the whole thing off and throw it. To where your chickens are, throw it in the compost, whatever, and let them let them take what they want when they want it. And if you're doing this type of thing, another thing you can do: do sunflower sprouts for them. You know, get a, get a couple five gallon buckets, drill some holes in the bottom of them, take one without holes for a soaking bucket, and take the bu- take one bucket with holes and put it inside the non soaking bucket, the, the non hole bucket, and fill it with you know a, a, a cup or two of sunflower seed, just cheap black oil sunflower. Put water in it, soak them overnight, pull that one out, dump that water out, start another one. And, and then just water, I, I have videos of this, but just you know, hit, hit it with water every day, the, your, your four or five buckets worth, and by the fourth or fifth day, you'll have heavily sprouted, starting to come out of their shell, sunflower sprouts. Feed that to your chickens. It's cheap, and you're taking um, you know, maybe let's say a quarter pound of sunflower seed and you're making like two and a half pounds of sunflower sprouts. Feed them that. If you do microgreens, after you harvest your microgreens, give them the trays. Let them clean that out. Anything that comes out of the garden that you're not going to use, give it to your chickens. They love tomatoes. Like, feed them all the stuff on your land. That's what my grandparents did. That's what everybody did. And then all of a sudden, it doesn't matter if you're feeding them cheap feed because they're only getting 25% of their diet from, from chicken feed. It's just giving them their base nutrition and enough calories that they're getting their, their base nutrition and they're getting their calories from the chicken feed, but they're getting all of their real nutrition and augmentations from the land. Or if you can drive down the amount of feed you have to give them. So if you have a small flock and you're using two bags of feed a month, and you can go down using them a bag of feed a month, and the better feeds twice as much, you can either feed them the cheap one and now you're even cheaper, or you can now afford to feed them and justify the cost of the more expensive feed. There are so many ways to do this. If you set up a, a composting system using black soldier flies, feed them the black soldier fly larvae. They, they go crazy for that stuff. It's like candy to them. There, there's just so many ways to augment the feed that you shouldn't let the fact that you have to feed a cheaper feed because it's what you can get or it's what you can afford prevent you from doing this. I, I don't care if you feed the cheapest, most generic feed. Again, I still think you're getting more from it. And, and kind of what I want to really end on is the why of why we should be doing this. Our grandparents did this for a very simple reason. They knew that most of the year those birds would lay eggs. And that was a source of nutrition and protein that their families would always have access to. And they knew that they could always make more chickens and get more eggs. And they knew that if times got really hard, even if the chickens weren't the best chickens for me, that this summer I can just hatch 30, 40, 60 chickens 
and I can have something to eat. It is, the chicken is the model of self-sufficiency. It really is. And the more you can feed it from the land, the more that is the case. But if you think about how, you know, there's a reason when something's really cheap, we say it's chicken feed, the cost is chicken feed. It's cheap. I know a place you can buy 50-pound sacks of feed. It's not what I choose to feed, but it's, I mean, they'll eat it for $11 a sack. $11 per 50 pounds. You can raise a lot of chickens on that feed, and there are other options too. I mean, would it be better if you fed the chicken a high-quality feed its whole life? Sure. But if you were raising, like, I'm just going to do a meat run. I'm going to do a meat run, and I'm going to do it with regular heritage breed chickens. Again, they're going to be small or whatever. Okay, fine. But I'm going to do it because I need to do it. <clears throat> well, you can feed that really cheap feed. If you're going to raise those birds, let's say 12 weeks of age, because that's about where any more food and the size gain is not going to be offset by the feed. And you can feed them like for 10 weeks and finish them on the best feed. That's, that's another kind of little trick you can play. They're young animals. They're resilient. That gives them time to kind of detox. And if they're, again, if they're getting some of their diet from the land, it, it augments everything. There's just so many ways to do this. And I also think that it's a great way to do, it's a great thing to do for your kids. Our children are growing up in a world where they don't see anything die anymore. And this is a funny thing, but when you don't witness death, you, you have less value of life. One thing that I know that every one of my friends that I grew up with understood was death was permanent. And that made us make better decisions, even when we were stupid. And like I said, the only thing that separates the Gen X stupidity from millennial stupidity is we didn't have digital cameras and online to record all of our stupidity. Because we would have done it, and a lot of us wouldn't have the jobs we do today if our stupidity had been recorded. It was that bad. But we still understood this fundamental reality, death is forever. Because we witnessed death. And we witnessed it as young children in our backyard. It's not a bad thing. That doesn't mean you should force a child into a situation they're not ready for. You can only make that decision for your child. But we understood that even if like, you didn't see Dad kill the rooster, when the rooster was gone, the rooster was gone, and the rooster was on the plate. And that's a reality check that kids are growing up without. There's also responsibilities there. And again, the entire system of homesteading can revolve around the chicken. The chicken is the processing tool for all the compost and all the fertility and the place that all the waste can go to. So with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you, if you like the show and the work that we do, you can do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Uh, today for you, I have the, the, the promise from yesterday fulfilled. This knife, it's made in Turkey. It's a folding, harvesting, and pruning knife. They really are used heavily for like harvesting berries and grapes in Turkey. It's like a hookbill shape, kind of sickle shape. It folds. It's big enough to be hand-sized. It's like opened. It's almost 12 inches long. Um, but when it folds up, it does fit fine in like a back of a jean pocket or a cargo shark pocket or something like that. So you don't leave it laying around like you would a rice knife. This is basically a folding rice knife, but that's not what it's called. The, the, the design of the serrations is really cool. It works really, really good for you know cutting grain heads off, trimming grass, cutting things like we were talking about today, like cutting the heads off sunflowers, cutting the heads off amaranth or quinoa. Um, it's 
it's everything that I said about a rice knife last week in a folding tool that's built a little bit beefier, not a lot beefier, but a little bit beefier um, than a rice knife. The wood handle is unfinished. It would take stain nice. It will take a sealer nice. Um, the blade can certainly be patinaed with like a vinegar because it's a carbon steel blade. I am go- I just bought two more of them because I knew I was going to put this out today, and I know when I review a product, sometimes it sells out. These are only available from one supplier. A couple people have already looked and tried to find another source of them as a backup source and already said, I can't find anybody else anywhere selling these things. They come directly from Turkey. When you read the Amazon description, you'll see that whoever did the English translation has some problems. Uh, It's good for breeding. I think what they mean is probably for grafting of grapes. I'm guessing that's what that means. But there's some definite loss in translation. Um, It is made by a company called Bekake Muhammad, I think is how you would say it. I can't read it. Mulamer Menhemen is the, what's on the blade, uh, best I could say it anyway. Um, I am in love with this. I've used it all weekend. I used it a bunch yesterday. I am going to take these. I'm going to sand the ones that I'm getting. I'm going to stain them a really cool way. I'm going to seal them. I'm going to give them as gifts. I think I'm probably going to give one as a gift to specifically one of my instructors at TSP20, and I think I might raffle one off as kind of a, a present uh, or a, a door prize, I guess, to one of the students. Um, I think I may actually, some people I know that are big into homesteading and all, I may go ahead and get ahead of the power curve for Christmas this year once I see how they come out with kind of a hand finish. I don't think there's any need to do this to them, by the way. I think that what I, I would say that the only thing you need to do to make this thing last a really long time, maybe patina the blade if you're not going to keep it constantly oiled to help keep rust down, and just linseed oil seal the freaking handle. I mean, that's, that's really it. Um, I'm going to do that because they're going to look cool. And I think they'd make a really great gift, and I know that the person's going to be like, I have three of those already, unless it lives in this show and bought them. Um, patina ink blades. This is something, it's basically a form of bluing. So bluing, if you really want to, when you blew a gun, what you're doing, you're actually doing a controlled type of rust, which think about it as gilding. So if I don't want a particular plant to go grow in a space, what do I do? I put a different plant there to occupy the space. If I rust metal in a way that's good for me, and it's not really rust, but it is because it's an oxidation method, um, then I've put that metal in a state where it's less likely to rust in the way that I don't like, not impossible. And, and carbon steel will patina with vinegar really, really easily. And you can do as simple as take a uh, paper towel soaked in vinegar and wrap a, a, a carbon steel blade with it. You can suspend it somehow and put it into it like a vat where it sits in it. And if you do it vertically, what's fun, I've, I've done it with more knives. You can actually watch the process happen. You'll see little bubbles forming, and it'll actually, the metal will turn starting at the tip and work upward. It's, it's really cool. And it gets kind of this gunmetal gray color. And uh, you can give it a little bit of a rub with some steel wool and give it a second treatment and give it a little coat of like a light blade oil or like a blade wax or something like that, and it will drastically reduce the recurrence of rust. I do that with a lot of carbon steel stuff. Most carbon steel blades eventually will develop just from use this type of a patina. It's just you're just accelerating it. If you've ever looked at like like a really old like old hickory uh, butcher knife or something like that, and they have that kind of gray look to their blades, and they just don't rust anymore, even though they're carbon, 
that's what that is. And it comes from just cutting lots of things over time and different acids and things getting on the blade. But um, I, I now consider this kind of an essential homesteading permaculture gardening tool. And I really recommend you take a look at it. Uh, I know I put out an item of the day every day, and I always say good things about it or it wouldn't be here. But this is one of those things you probably haven't seen before. And if you do a lot of gardening work and stuff and you're constantly needing to prune and cut and clear, I think this can make your life a little better. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. You can always help us out by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Another thing I have out today, I have an article out today about Parlay, which is kind of the, uh, it's being, you know, called the, the conservative answer to Twitter, which I'm not really all about being conservative or liberal. I'm all about communication with people. But I've been on there about a month. I have right at 900 followers, and I actually really like what Parler's doing. And I, I kind of criticized them a couple days ago. They answered me. They answered me and said, we're, well, we're doing that. We're working on this. We're trying to make that work. And so I wrote an article today called Four Things Parlay Needs to Do to Blow Up Big Time. You might want to check that article out and consider following me on Parlay. Um, I can tell you that one of my four suggestions, I found out after I wrote the article, they're already working on it. So I'll, I'll just take credit for it, even though I, I didn't actually make it happen. Um, but I think what they need to do is make content and profiles more public instead of like only for members. And that's the one that they are already doing. Uh, actually, live streaming video is something they, I, from what I understand, they're going to be doing that too. Um, I also said they should give us an option to follow hashtags because that's how you find people. And I don't want to sit there and search hashtags randomly. Once I find a hashtag I like, I want to follow that in my feed uh, and fix their dang suggested uh, people to follow. I have right now 19 people in my suggested list, and I follow them all already. Like, that's just, that does not help. And I gave some defense and some unfair criticism, and I talked about some things I really like about Parlay, too. I, <laughs> this is not like a post that says, hey, you guys suck, and if you don't fix it, I'm not going to use you. It's actually asking me offering some free advice, and, and maybe they'll take it. I don't know. Um, but if you are on my daily mail list, you would get that article. You would get the daily write-up on the item of the day. You would get all of that stuff. So uh, consider getting on the daily mail and consider becoming a member of the MSB. Just go to the site and click on members to learn more about that. But if you do that, you'll get enough discounts to pay for your membership. With that, let's wrap things up with the song of the day. Again, I'm doing George Thorogood Week. Uh, today's song for you is probably the song he's most known for by the most people other than Bad to the Bone. Um, I can't remember the guy that did it now, and it was right at the tip of my tongue, and somebody will post and tell me who it is, and I'll be like, yeah, that was it. This is actually a cover, though. This is a cover song. I can't remember the guy that did it, but Thorogood did the better version of it, and he's best known for it. A lot of people think it is his originally. And it's, of course, one bourbon, one scotch, and one beer. And this is one of those songs that, like, Thorogood's perfect for because, like, half the song is talking and half of it's really singing. And it's telling a really long, unique, kind of funny story. Um, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. And we have three more George Thorogood songs before the week ends. And yes, I will play Bad to the Bone. You can guess when. That'll be Friday. With that, has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Story about the house went blue. I come home on Friday. I had to tell the landlady I done lost my job. She said, that don't confront me. Long as I get my money next Friday. Now next Friday I come, I didn't get the rent. 
And out the door I went So I goes to the landlady I said, you let me slide I have the rent for it I'm all the next out on the Let me slide it on, you know, people. I notice when I come home in the evening, she ain't got nothing nice to say to me. But for five years, she was so nice. Lord, she would love her, dove it. I come home one particular evening. The landlady said, You got the rent money yet? I said, No. Can't find no job. Therefore, I ain't got no money to pay the rent. I said, I don't believe you're trying to find no job. Said, I seen you today, you were standing on a corner, leaning up against a post. I said, but I'm tired. I've been walking all day. She said, that don't confront me. Long as I get my money next Friday. Now next Friday, I come out in the rent. And out the door I went. So I go down the street, down to my good friend's house. I said, look, man, I'm outdoors, you know. Can I stay with you maybe a couple of days? He said, oh, let me go and ask my wife. He come out of the house, I can see his face. I know there was no. He said, oh, I don't know, man, uh, she got a funny, you know. I said, I know. Everybody funny. Now you for that too. So I go back home. I tell the landlady, I got a job. I'm gonna pay the rent. She said, yeah. I said, oh, yeah. And then she was so nice. Lord, she would love it, love it. I go in my room, pack up my things, and I go. I slip on out the back door. Down the streets I go. She uh, hollering about the front rent. She'll be lucky to get in the back rent. She ain't gonna get none of it. So I stop in the local bar, you know, people. I go to the bar. I rent my coat. I call a bartender. I said, look, man, come down here. He got down there. So what you want? I want bourbon. I want scotch. I want beer. Well, I ain't seen my baby since I don't know when. I've been drinking bourbon whiskey, scotch and gin. Gonna get high, man. I'm gonna get loose. Need me a triple shot of that. Bro. 
bourbon, I'm drinking scotch, I'm drinking beer. Look at a bar. They call the bartender. Doesn't look mad. Come down here. So what you want? Yeah. 